You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 27th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. A deal is done on Northern Ireland. We'll have the latest. China welcomes Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko, the Sancho Panza to Vladimir Putin's Don Quixote, and which undrinkable beverage of yesteryear are you weirdly nostalgic for? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Isabel Hilton and Oscar Juadiola-Rivera will discuss all the day's stories and later in the show the what-could-go-wrong combination of bears and cocaine. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Isabel Hilton, international journalist and the founder of China Dialogue, and by Oscar Juariola Rivera, professor in international law and international affairs at Birkbeck College. Hello to you both. Hello. It's good to be here. Um, Oscar, as we so often do, we are going to have to begin by discussing your outfit. You are, (laughs) I am craning over this monitor here. You're wearing a Duran Duran hoodie, I cannot help but notice. And because I was doing that, I had to wear a hat. Well, uh, what, you always so, wear a hat. <laughs> are you wearing the hat in the hope that nobody will notice that it is you that is wearing a Duran Duran hoodie? Does that explain the sunglasses and the fake beard you are also wearing? I could have had a parrot on my shoulder. <laughs> Any, anything to draw attention away from the fact that you are, and I reiterate, wearing a Duran Duran oh, hoodie. I am, I am. Oscar, those, why are you wearing a Duran Duran well, hoodie? Those guys were very important when we were kids back in Colombia. A friend of mine actually made up a parrot out of papier mache and put it on his shoulder. We were crazy about them. What, what, sorry, is, what, there's a parrot Duran Duran association which has passed me by. Uh, there's, there's a video of Duran Duran. I don't even remember if it's Rio or one of those. Oh, yeah. There's a parrot there. So. Was, was Rio a big hit in South America? It was. It was a huge hit. Um, they, they, they shouldn't have stopped there. They should have named. They should have done other songs called Montevideo and Bogota. Absolutely. Well, they had a concert uh, called Arena. That's close to our Spanish arena. So there yeah. you go. Shameless pandering. Uh, is, Isabel, seeing as how this is where we seem to have drifted to, did you ever have fixed views on the subject of Duran Duran or the broader New Romantic movement? I'm sorry to disappoint you. Oh. <laughs> it's, 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 it's sport and new romantic, isn't it? You, ju- you just don't care. I just don't. <laughs> we but will... it's a very handsome hoodie, what can I say? We will have more from Isabel and Oscar uh, later in the show, and after that build-up, I'm sure you cannot wait. But first... I'm pleased to report that we have now made a decisive breakthrough. Together, we have changed the original protocol and are today announcing the new Windsor framework. Today's agreement delivers smooth flowing trade within the whole United Kingdom, protects Northern Ireland's place in our union and safeguards sovereignty for the people of Northern Ireland.
That was UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak speaking a short while ago. Now, during the Brexit referendum campaign of 2016, those who understood anything at all about Northern Ireland cautioned that if this particular can was opened, the proverbial worms would take considerable retrieving, and so it proved. Nearly seven years later, a deal has at last been done over post-Brexit trade arrangements for Northern Ireland. The difficulty in some was always that the UK leaving EU meant that there would have to be some sort of hard border on the island of Ireland and there cannot be any sort of hard border on the island of Ireland. The political reporter Vincent McAvaney joins us now for more on this. Um, Vincent, we, we will come back to the curious entitling of the Windsor framework, but as far as we understand it so far, what is the Windsor framework? Well, it has only been published in just the last 10 minutes. So everyone is now pouring over the full detail. It's gone up on the .gov website. Uh, But the detail that we got out the press conference a couple of hours ago was that there will be a new system. So a green lane, red lane system. Green lane is for products that are just going from Great Britain. So that is Wales, England and Scotland into Northern Ireland that aren't going on then to the Republic of Ireland and thus into the EU. So those will have uh, less checks put on them. It'll mean a better movement of things like foods into supermarkets, which has been something that has been a problem. The red lane will be things that have the current checks because that will be going not into anywhere in Northern Ireland, but then straight on through Northern Ireland via transit into the Republic of Ireland and thus into the EU. Uh, So that is the big announcement here. There will also be a removal of any customs declarations needed or for pets, parcels or medicines heading from Great Britain into Northern Ireland. Uh, The UK will have powers over VAT changes that it can make in uh, Northern Ireland. And then this big one as well, the Stormont break. So the EU laws that uh, that apply uh, in Northern Ireland when it comes to uh, regulations of goods, uh, the the assembly at Stormont, the devolved assembly, can do something called now the Stormont break, uh, which it can try to reject any rules being imposed on them from Brussels, but it cannot be for trivial reasons. It must be for significant reasons. So all of this is really trying to appease the DUP, the unionist party uh, that has uh, for many months now refused to power share with Sinn Féin because they lost uh, their dominant position being the first minister. They will appoint only the deputy first minister uh, and Sinn Féin will have the power of the first minister. So we now wait to see how the parties, uh, both nationally, uh, how the Conservative Party in Westminster reacts to these proposals and how the parties in Northern Ireland react, particularly, of course, the DUP, because many have accused them of simply bluffing that they were unhappy with the Northern Ireland protocol as a reason for just not wanting to power share anymore because they weren't the dominant party. Is that the reason the DUP and their sensitivities, that is, for the optics of this, calling it the Windsor framework, making sure it's very much associated with the Crown and therefore the Union, uh, and on the advice of the government, as the as Buckingham Palace has been careful to say, uh, having King Charles III receive EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen? Yeah, I mean, the the framing is very interesting, this idea of doing it uh, at Windsor. When I first got the press release, I thought, oh, they must be doing it at Chequers because it just said it was going to be out of London, but near London. But no, then this whole Windsor thing came about. Um, And it it does run the risk, it has to be said, of involving the monarchy quite heavily in what is a political decision, which is incredibly controversial, not just in the UK, uh, sorry, in, in Great Britain, but also then you add the extra layers of history in Northern Ireland as well. 
Um, so that it is interesting. I mean, part of it, yeah, I mean, it is a bit like sticking it in, um, you know, Jerry Hallowell's Union Jack dress to try and sort of sell it to the DUP by putting it, you know, in one of the most British places ever that, you know, the bunting never comes down in. Um, I think we'll be what they've only so far put out a holding statement. We will see whether or not they do go along with this. But ultimately, I think it'll come down to the fact that they're not actually that bothered what's been renegotiated by Rishi, which is a pretty interesting renegotiation. They simply don't like the fact uh, that they will not have power or they will not be the dominant party anymore in the devolved assembly. Uh, The DUP are, of course, not the only gaggle of obdurates that Sunak has to square this with. He has said, though, hasn't given a time that this will be put to the Commons. Do we have any indication yet how the European research group tendency of Tory Brexiter MPs are likely to react for the benefit of our international viewers? These are people who regard anything short of bricking up the Channel Tunnel as an intolerable compromise? Well, I think we will see uh, and hear from them in the next few hours. The one that's interesting, Steve Baker, uh, who was sort of tried to really lead on the ERG, particularly when it came to Northern Ireland, but didn't off sometimes know exactly what it was, it seemed, that he was talking about. He's actually now a minister um, in the Northern Ireland office. So I think he is uh, rumoured to be on resignation watch. I think there are one or two others like him, the ERG, who are in minister positions that are on, on resignation watch at the moment. But I think it sounds as if it is only going to be the kind of most fringiest of ERG members that try and object to this too heavily. They keep saying, oh, we'll take our leave from the DUP. So they'll be watching for that. I think that the factor to look at is Boris Johnson, because this is basically a correction from the so-called oven ready deal that he claimed to have in 2019, which has proved so problematic in, in many in the unionist community in Northern Ireland consider it a betrayal because Boris Johnson said categorically, there will be no Irish sea border. Anyone that brings your customs form, bring it to me and I'll tear it up and eat it. Uh, And so this was a kind of way uh, Boris Johnson could have tried to kind of worm his way back potentially into the leadership of the Conservative Party if the party felt like Rishi Sunak was kind of selling out the unionist community. We'll see how the unionist community responds, but I don't think they're going to see this as a a sort of huge betrayal. I think this is a a better situation than the one that they're in. They're never going to get everything they want. It's always going to be compromised, but we'll see how Boris Johnson maybe tries to exploit this. Vincent McAvenny, thank you as always for joining us. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. Now, any overseas travel plans announced by Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko are likely to prompt an arching of eyebrows. Is he doing that thing of skipping the country with as much of the national treasury as he can cram into his portmanteaus? Might he fall victim to the well-loved manoeuvre whereby the rivals of an unloved tyrant change the locks on his office as soon as his plane leaves national airspace? The trip that Lukashenko is embarking on this week looks even more curious given the destination. Beijing for what is being billed as a full-blown state visit. Quite the honour for a, for the discredited leader of a stony broke Russian client with a population half that of Guangzhou. Um, Isabel, at the invitation of Xi Jinping it says here, there wasn't an RSVP attached to that, was there? <laughs> I believe not. No, no. <laughs> um, but it's curious that this invitation has never been extended Extended to um, to prime minister of a neighbouring country or the president of a neighbouring country, namely Ukraine. I mean, China mm. hasn't been speaking to. So, what exactly uh, uh, the Belarus has done for this enormous favour uh, remains at the moment a matter of speculation. But it may well be that just to say, look, if you come in on Russia's side and open a new front, uh, you, we just 
just beware because, you know, I don't think that um, China wants this, this war to be generalised any further. You think this might be one of those conversations to which one of the parties is metaphorically, if not actually, being dangled out of a high window by his ankles? <laughs> yes, or possibly, you know, being asked to consider exactly which gauge of ground glass he would like in his, <laughs> in his evening meal. Um, we have heard in the last week or so, Oscar, China's peace plan uh, for Ukraine. And it, and it is interesting that President Volodymyr Zelensky, though he has not yet spoken to Xi Jinping, or at least hasn't recently, uh, did say out loud that he would be perfectly happy to. Um, what do we read into that? Is it possible Zelensky sees something actually in China's peace plan he finds acceptable, or does he think he might be able to drive some sort of wedge between China and Russia? Well, Zelensky has said uh, he finds aspects of uh, these, uh, let's call it position paper, uh, interesting, even uh, 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 you know, things that he could agree with. Uh, uh, it is understood that uh, they ha they may have been some communications between the, the, the Chinese and the Ukrainians uh, in Munich. You were there, so you might tell us uh, more about that. We, we weren't invited to those meetings, un <laughs> unaccountably. Not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> Two foreign ministers did, did yes, have a conversation. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And that, that is interesting. Uh, uh, there are some other tours uh, there. What can be read into that? Well, on the one hand, uh, as uh, uh, we just uh, had been suggested it would be interesting for the Ukrainians to have uh, a uh, direct communication with uh, uh, with China and for uh, Zelensky to try and talk to to uh, uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, there have been many uh, suggestions that that's what the Chinese should be doing. Uh, so leaving that door open uh, is uh, interesting. Uh, of course, at present, uh, this is the proverbial solitary voice, uh, you know, shouting in the desert. Uh, the Chinese are uh, speaking of peace. The proposal looks more like a position paper. It is not a specific. Uh, it's quite vague, in fact. Mm. Uh, and uh, but it does uh, it does resonate with uh, the fact that although the war has united the West, there is a large portion of uh, the rest of the world that, that uh, remains uh, uh, unconvinced about uh, uh, the possibility that this would uh, become a new Cold War. And as we just heard, uh, China does not want this war to be generalized. It would be terrible for them. Uh, that's that's uh, the that's the important point. Uh, Isabel, can we imagine Xi Jinping saddling up for the train ride to Kiev from the Polish border? <laughs> well, it would transform um, China's image in the rest of the world, I have to say. It would be a coup de théâtre that, you know, he might uh, even consider, though I can't see it happening right now. What I, I am uh, impressed by uh, Zelensky's capacity to out-virtue signal China, uh, because, you know, this 12-point this, um, uh, uh, position paper... Is you know, it? It sort of says it's a motherhood and apple pie. Look, we love peace. Look, we you know it, <laughs> there is absolutely no diplomatic framework. There is no plan. There is no. There was no preparation. There is nothing. So they're signalling, um, as Oscar suggests, to uh, the as you know to the to the neutrals to the to the emerging economies. Look, you know China's not like these nasty Americans or 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 these slightly mad Russians. Um, but it, but most of the points 
would support the Russian position. You know, they they haven't called for... I mean, they call for territorial integrity to be respected, but they're not clear about what yeah. that would mean. Um, they call for a ceasefire, which is certainly not in Ukraine's interest in the in the short term. You know, they, they really... And there's, there's no mechanism here. Um, the Ukrainians are being very polite. Mm. And, you know, I did talk to... Ukrainian official about this um, and said, "Is there? Are, can you imagine circumstances under which China would be regarded by Ukraine as a valid uh, interlocutor in this?" And and he sort of smiled and said, "China is a permanent member of the Security Council, um, so every answer is a political answer, uh, and you, they're not looking for any more enemies. They're going to smile and nod and say yes, uh, but nothing's going to happen with this proposal." Um, Oscar, one European head of state who clearly does think China is worth talking to is President Emmanuel Macron of France. Uh, He is going to Beijing in April. Um, Does that meeting signal perhaps that China's enthusiasm for Russia's adventure in Ukraine is waning somewhat and they are trying to find ways to get this wound down at a a minimum of loss of face for all involved? Of course we will have to wait and see what comes out of that meeting but uh, the very uh, um, the very wording of uh, Macron's uh, declarations uh, seemed interesting to me uh, I was wondering whether here we see someone, one of uh, uh, the European heads of a state who is realizing that the, uh, uh, let's say, strong dependence of uh, uh, Europe on Europe's security on uh, the US is exactly what they uh, what they uh, uh, would like to go for. A, a uh, one possible consequence of this war, or one thing that this war has already made apparent, is the strong dependency of uh, uh, Europe uh, on the US on matters of security. And that is uh, uh, something that uh, uh, I guess would uh, uh, concern, at least to a certain extent, a French uh, uh, president. Historically, it always did. Exactly. <laughs> so, so in that respect, you know, this makes historical sense. Uh, but also, there, there are there are you know the rule of the one one of diplomacy: keep the doors open. You have to you have to allow for that. Of course, everybody right now is saying war, war, war. This you know as long as it takes, someone has to uh, keep those doors uh, open. Uh, is not surprising, but uh, indeed interesting that Macron is uh, uh, trying to be that person. Although Macron did try to do this with Putin, if you remember earlier. So he is quite keen to be the Mm. guy who, who, you know, who brings home the prize. But just just quickly on that, Isabel, this does play into Emmanuel Macron's fairly clear sense, especially post-Brexit, that the president of France is the de facto president of Europe. Absolutely, particularly since Germany has been so extremely divided and remains so uh, over Ukraine and, and therefore, you know, sort of going to be in the background. Well, let's now move along to Mexico. And it is always hard to know what constitutes a protest big enough to be newsworthy. In a city as big as Mexico City, tens of thousands of people taking to the streets still leave circa 9 million who had other priorities. Nevertheless, tens of thousands have been protesting this weekend at new electoral laws being floated by Mexico's president, Andre Manuel López Obrador, usually known as AMLO. AMLO's big idea, and in fairness, it is the kind of thing which 
might reasonably arouse suspicion is to gut the National Electoral Institute, which ensures the freeness and fairness of elections. Um, Oscar, there are elections due next year. AMLO cannot seek re-election. He is term limited. So what is he doing here? He cannot seek re-election, and uh, uh, to be uh, truthful, uh, his party, Morena, is doing incredibly well in the polls. Uh, those who called... Uh, as, as is he personally. Yes. And those who called for these uh, uh, protests, the opposition, which is mainly uh, the PAN, PAN and PRI, uh, they are the most disreputed uh, uh, parties in Mexico, and they're doing terribly in the polls. Yes, they managed to to uh, uh, bring 90,000 people uh, at the Socalo, and that's symbolically significant, mm-hmm. but uh, their case is not there. Uh, they are saying that this uh, reform will uh, effectively destroy uh, the one institution that cares for elections and democracy. Uh, far from that, uh, uh, the, the aim of these uh, much diluted version of the first version of uh, electoral reform merely uh, uh, caps the numbers of uh, uh, the so-called gilded bureaucracy that uh, 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 remain in this institution, brings down uh, the cost of election and uh, produces a cap on uh, the uh, quite enormous salaries of uh, some of the members of this institution, which uh, uh, many times can be bigger than those of uh, uh, government officials. And uh, this is really an attempt at, uh, uh, you know, bringing to size an institution that has so far been uh, in uh, the hands of uh, uh, the elites of the opposition parties. This is the real reason why they are opposing so uh, vehemently and saying that this uh, uh, would, uh, uh, you know, put Mexican democracy in peril. That's not the case. Uh, uh, the listeners would like to know, for instance, that uh, the very office of the presidency has just uh, undergone a very similar procedure. It hasn't collapsed. And uh, uh, at that point, nobody said, oh, this is, uh, this is the end of Mexican democracy. Clearly not the case. So we are not in any respect witnessing a rerun of that familiar trajectory, especially in Latin America, from left-wing populist to slightly unhinged autocrat? Not, and the reason is simple. He doesn't need it. As I said, you know, he's doing incredibly well in the polls. There is no need for for that kind of shenanigans uh, uh, just yet. And uh, uh, both the Chicago Tribune and the L.A. Uh, Times, who are always very cautious uh, to inform their Mexican population about uh, uh, what really is going on in Mexico, uh, made it clear that uh, yeah, the opposition is is being vociferous, but the case is not their case is not there. Um, Isabel, is this just a question of bad optics? It is quite hard to announce that you are going to slash and burn the National Electoral Institute and look good doing it, or is there actually something sinister going on here, despite Oscar's reassurances? Oscar is very reassuring, but I'm slightly less uh, (laughs) tranquil about this move, I have to say. I mean, you know, uh, López Obrador began his career in the PRI, which is the Institutional Mm -hmm. Revolutionary Party. Um, They all do. Indeed. (laughs) And for 70 years, the PRI had a a system of of, um, nominating uh, or or, of electing, in quotes, uh, president, which is known as the dedazo, which is the outgoing president pointed at somebody to be the incoming president. <laughs> and, and he's, 
simple and elegant system. Indeed. And I have a slight sort of, I get a slight whiff of Didasso, you know, revival here that, that you, if you do, um, that, you know, he will, he, do, he can't run himself, but, you know, he will pick a friendly, um, a friendly successor, a friendly nominee. And then he'll, you know, with a weakened uh, oversight, he might well turn into, or his successor might well turn into one of those. And that we've seen that happen repeatedly. I mean, he's cutting the budget by 70%. And this is also an institution that runs the entire kind of um, uh, identity card system for Mexico. So it does do solid work. He is very cross that, that some of them are paid more than he is, though. Oh, absolutely. Not, not just him. Last time, uh, elections costed $2,000 uh, million. That's way, uh, that's way too much and uh, too unnecessary. And uh, in this particular case, it is pre which is opposing uh, the reform. Uh, uh, again, the, the, the harder, the more uh, interesting and perhaps more controversial measures that had been included in the previous reform uh, did not go ahead. And they did not go ahead because they included, for instance, uh, uh, slashing the numbers of, mm -hmm. uh, of uh, uh, members of Congress. Uh, this is a matter of savings, but not just that. There is a political intent, and the political intent is to bring the INE uh, under out of the control of uh, PRI and PAN. A lot of people are still uh, are still there. Sure, but and, but he and he accuses it of being conservative and anti his administration. Yeah. But you know they certified his election. They haven't. I don't think there's been any credible suggestion that they um, that that they were you know in in the way of, of an honest uh, election last time. Um, so I don't, I'm not sure that his, his constitutional case is made, to be honest. I can see the there, cost there are going to be There are going to be constitutional challenges. Uh, but again, I mean, when you look at the, at the actual uh, wording of the law, uh, it is not got in the structure. It is, uh, for instance, you have uh, uh, in many of the, the vocalias, uh, you have uh, five uh, spokespeople. Well, they're going to be reduced to three. Uh, uh, is, and the oversight uh, uh, is going to remain in, uh, in all uh, municipalities uh, across Mexico. So it is going to be to continue to be uh, a functional institution. Just finally on this, Oscar, is there no aspect to this at all of what Isabel suggested, i.e. that AMLO is attempting to clear a path for his preferred successor slash puppet slash stooge? Again, the, the, the best evidence behind that is that he doesn't need to because they're doing incredibly well in the polls. Uh, so uh, not even the, the, the proverbial finger that the DASO is required here they're on course to win the, uh, the presidential election uh, next year. And Pan and Pri cannot muster uh, a uh, you know, powerful uh, uh, opposite figure. Why? Because they are extremely divided. And just uh, last week, uh, uh, yet another higher member of uh, one of the parties uh, was uh, accused and condemned in the United States for, for, for drug trafficking. So this is going to be very difficult for them to to come back. Uh, we will now move along to something uh, altogether trivial, which is the ghastly fizzy alcoholic drink Baby Sham. It has long been a staple of British sitcoms, deployed as a Proustian Madeleine evoking a specifically 60s, 70s era naffness. It was indeed the first alcoholic drink advertised on British television. Excuse me? Oh, I'd love the baby show. <laughs> yeah.
It is a long time, however, since baby sham has actually been a staple refreshment, occluded in popular tastes by even more gruesome alcopop beverages with names generally ending in exclamation marks. However, a baby sham revival may be afoot, or such at least is the earnest wish of baby sham's new owners, who are in fact its old owners, the current generation of the showering family, descended from the Somerset innkeeper who concocted the first batch. Um, I, I will admit out loud, having grown up in Australia, watching a lot of British sitcoms, I was quite startled upon arrival in this country to discover that Baby Sham was a real thing. I thought it was just, I thought it was like a, a just a running gag, a joke name. Um, so I do want to ask you both, and probably Isabel, you are the obvious person to ask because you have spent more time here than either myself or Oscar. Have you ever actually consumed it? Certainly not. <laughs> I mean, it, it was regarded as naff at the time. I, I mean, you would, you, would, you would die of shame if you were caught ordering a baby sham. And I'm told it tasted disgusting. And, and certainly, you know, in, in those days, if you went out for, for a night, I mean, it was completely useless at getting you drunk, which was largely the point. Um, are you suggesting, Isabel, that it was, it was primarily a beverage of the riffraff? I'm suggesting <laughs> that it was advertised a lot and it was kind of kitschy, um, but I don't think I ever saw anyone actually drinking it. Now, Oscar, it does actually seem a fair question to ask somebody wearing a Duran Duran hoodie. Uh, have, have you ever drunk Baby Sham? I have, Hooray! in fact, <laughs> because, of course, uh, such things would make it to the Caribbean and uh, and uh, they were around. And, uh, uh, of course, I remember that uh, me and my friends, while our partners were parting and being very careful we wouldn't drink their uh, their uh, stuff, we would try and, and uh, you know, uh, get uh, a couple of uh, those small uh, bottles uh, with the hope that we would get drunk. Of course, as Isabella pointed out, never happened. Uh, and it was awful. And and it was awful, thus answering my next question. Um, Isabel, you were saying it, it was of little utility uh, in getting one drunk. Coming from where you did, obviously, you would have preferred Buckfast. <laughs> I think that's a bit of a leap. But anyway. <laughs> uh, but, but, but can they get this to fly again? Because I, I was going through some of the old advertising for Baby Sham earlier, and it, and it is a, well, fascinating slash horrifying glimpse into a whole other universe in which uh, advertising was absolutely unabashedly gendered. Baby Sham was very much pitched as the fruit-based drink for the ladies uh, yes. while the chaps are drinking their beer. Absolutely. And and the advertising, as I recall it, was of a, of a rather sort of simpering young woman in a, in a sort of 50s dress and hairdo. And this was a time of, you know, women's liberation and feminism. I mean, for, for many, many reasons, we did not uh, tune into Baby Sham. Um, so I'm not quite sure how this would play uh, these days, but except as a, as a blatant nostalgic kick along with, you know, vinyl... LPs and all that kind of thing, you know, um, things that don't work but look quite cute. I, I'm going to have a glass of baby sham and switch on my hi-fi. Exactly, yeah. that's the kind of thing. Uh, well, yeah. well, on that note, we did want to broaden this out into a discussion of the nostalgic power of certain foodstuffs or drinks. And uh, Oscar, is there anything that gets you, aside obviously from baby sham <laughs> itself, is, is there anything that gets you like this? Actually... There is. Uh, my favorite cereal when I was a kid was Count Chocolate. 
uh, by General Mills. And they just brought it back late last year. So I was so excited. I managed, uh, uh, you know, for a friend to send me a, a, a box of it from the U.S. Uh, so that my daughter could see it and, and, uh, and like it. Uh, she was, uh, let's just say, <laughs> not all the it, way there. Is, is this, I mean, I'm, I'm not teaching you how to raise your children here, but is, 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 is it the healthiest of breakfast it's options? totally unhealthy. <laughs> <laughs> it's like 120% sugar and nothing else. <laughs> uh, which is, of course, why kids like it. Um, <laughs> I- Isabel, for you, other than Buckfast, obviously, is, is there... <laughs> Uh, anything I crave? No, I do have noticed things have sort of faded out, though. Does anyone drink Ovaltine anymore? Does that still around? See, I, Horlicks. I, Does anyone hmm. drink Horlicks? I, I was thinking uh, when uh, for, for myself, roughly, of the Antipodean and obviously superior Antipodean answer to Ovaltine, which uh-huh. was called Milo. Oh, well, ah, really? we had yes. Milo. Really? We had Milo in oh. South America. Oh, oh, and, and it's better, isn't it? Yeah, much better. Yeah, but asked if there's anything I missed from that time. It's actually a, the best dark chocolate in the world, which was called Bendix Sporting and Military Chocolate. And it was t- the, the firm was taken over by a quite respectable German chocolate firm. But they abolished the sporting and military chocolate, and I have never found a substitute. That is, that, is, that is sad. See, for me, it's un, unsurprisingly the, the confectionery of Australia, which I obviously grew up with. And it's, I, it's... Ju- I just don't see the Germans selling anything that is called military. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it's, uh, and I, I did uh, on return from my, well, last couple of trips to Australia, return with a bag of violet crumbles for the office. The violet crumble, for listeners who don't understand it, is the honeycomb and chocolate bar that the crunchy thinks it is. Crunchy, yes. But the crunchy is Sadly, sadly mistaken. If you think of like a crunchy Isabel, but just better, you, you have <laughs> yes. you, you have the violet crumble. And on that uh, plug for the Australian confectionery trade, uh, Oscar Huadiola Rivera and Isabel Hilton, thank you both for joining us. Finally, on today's show this weekend, Cocaine Bear, a film, as the title very strongly suggests, about a bear on cocaine, proved to be a hit at the box office, and and why wouldn't it? Uh, The film is loosely based on a remarkable true story. Monocle 24 senior correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco spoke to its screenwriter, Jimmy Warden, about the inspiration for Cocaine Bear. Beth, we should go. Millions of dollars worth of cocaine fell from the sky this morning in Knoxville, Tennessee. There's more of this out there. They dumped it somewhere. I'm looking for my daughter. Forest is a dangerous place. Hey, Henry, check it out. Something got into it. A deer, maybe. <gasps> I wanted to definitely shy away from what actually happened because the true story of it is a little sad with the bear you know dying almost immediately after ingesting the cocaine but i wanted to ground it in something that actually happened and so not actually basing it on true story but i guess inspired is the operative word so finding you know using andrew carter thornton and who's a you know, it was a Kentucky drug smuggler and he was doing a drug run from from Colombia and he dropped some cocaine from his Cessna into the Chattahoochee National Forest and a bear got into it. Like it, using that as the jumping off point to base that in reality is kind of did everything that I wanted it to. And then to having that reality basis 
of a bear actually ingesting it and then launching it from there and kind of letting creativity take hold or my imagination take hold from there. When you came up with the idea, how was it received by the producers and everyone else? Well, believe it or not, it wasn't the e easiest idea to pitch. Um, you know, you talk to other producers or other studios about it, and a lot of people are like, yeah, you know, maybe let us know when you have written the script. So it was the kind of thing that I just had in my head and I absolutely had to write. And then once the script was written and Brian Duffield, who's an old friend of mine who who I've known since the, since the movie The Babysitter, had given it to Phil and Chris, Lord and Miller, who are of, you know, 21 Jump Street, Spider-Verse, Lego movie fame, and they immediately got it. And, you know, the rest is history. Like, once you have those guys on board, it's kind of like it became a, a rocket ship. They understood the movie and they understood the tone, so... You mentioned tone there. Uh, there's lots of comedy in the film, but I also liked that there was quite a lot of gore as well. You didn't shy away from that aspect. Yeah, for sure. I think that that was definitely a decision made early. It was like, obviously, like an objective when you're writing a script is just to entertain yourself first, like write something that you want to watch. And I like gore, but I also like dynamic storylines. And when it came to writing the gore, it was like, yeah, this maybe goes too far. But if you go just a bit further than that, then it could also become funny. <laughs> and that's, you know, my favorite type of uh, type of gore. I presume you never seen a bear under the effect of cocaine, did you? No. no. So we, But if, did... if anybody has, they should reach out. They definitely should reach out. What about the scene setting? It's all very 80s. I love the scene. They played the pish mode, just can get enough uh, in the bear uh, scene with the car. Yeah, I think that that was, it's definitely something that Elizabeth Banks really wanted to do from the beginning was like, let's not make it kitschy 80s. And that comes down to the costume and the hair and the makeup and, and the music as well. But it's like, there's a timelessness to this movie where it's like at, at a certain point, you sort of forget that it's the 80s. And it's not like every single frame is populated with, you know, 80s stuff. And I really appreciated that about what, what Elizabeth Banks did with it. Reading an interview with Elizabeth Banks, she said, we shouldn't take everything so seriously. Do you agree with that? Uh, that cinema today needs a bit of that, a bit of fun. Right. Yeah, for sure. I think that there is, I like, I like both kinds of movies, you know, mm. and that, but my objective with this was always to create something that was entertaining and fun and that an audience can go and laugh and have fun together watching this movie. It was And of course, there are some like, maybe there are some more like heady themes within the movie if you really dive deep. You know, any good movie has those. But again, my first and almost only objective, and I think the same thing for all the filmmakers involved, was to let's make the audience have fun. So, and I think we, we did that, or according to your reaction to it. <laughs> I kind of sympathize with the bear watching the film. Right, yeah, that, I think for sure. 
this I don't think that the bear is a murderer innately. I think it's what happened once it ingested cocaine. In fact, like truthfully, black bears aren't that dangerous at all. The and I, I think they're like pretty friendly creatures. But finding that balance was something that we needed to was like one of the first things that we ever like really spoke about. And I always wanted this bear to, I always wanted the audience to sympathize with the bear. So I'm, gl- I'm so glad that you did too, because what actually happened is pretty sad as we, as we touched on earlier, but now we have, uh, maybe this is, this is the bear's revenge story. This is, you know, a redressing of like the actual events. This is what should have happened. This is my fantasy of what should have, what, what, maybe kind of sort of might have happened in this story. Finally, I love the cast. I mean, Ray Liotta in one of his final roles, really. Carrie Russell, how was it to work with this cast? I mean, it's, yeah, it is incredible. I couldn't be happier. Obviously, Ray Liotta was a dream to meet and work with. And, you know, he's everything that you hope him to be, you know. And just between... Carrie Russell, O'Shea Jackson, Alden Ehrenreich, Margot Martindale, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. Like we're, I can't believe the cast that we got for a movie called Cocaine Bear. And everybody across the board, all of them showed up and were ready to have fun. And I think that that really translates. Um, You can tell that the cast is like into it and they're having a ball, which is Probably some of my favorite elements of the movie. It's such a cool title, Cocaine Bear. Yeah, it's one of those unique titles where it tells you everything you need to know about the movie. So we got lucky, I guess. Jimmy Warden there speaking to Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Cocaine Bear is in a fine theatre near you soon. That is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Daily, in fact. A big thanks to my panellists today, Isabel Hilton and Oscar Guardiola Rivero, also to Vincent McAvenny at the top of the show. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Pamentuan. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nichol. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. <laughs>